Oh God, we thank you for this third Advent Sunday. And as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, give us the understanding we need, and give us strength by your Holy Spirit to carry out what we must as followers of Christ in all joy and the freedom that you give us. In Christ's name, amen. Let us turn to the book of Psalms, 126. We'll read the entire chapter, but from 126, 1 to 6. Psalm 126, from verses 1 through 6. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, this may seem like a familiar theme to a lot of us because I did go over for a few weeks a theme on happiness. Uh, interestingly enough, multiple people here, uh, whether it's in private, one-on-one, or, you know, publicly, have asked me, why did you choose to speak on happiness? What was your motivation behind it? You know, what made you think that you should speak on happiness? And I just wanted to answer here broadly, uh, if you want to, you know, hear more, you're always welcome to ask me. You know, buy me lunch. I I always appreciate that too. But happiness is something I've always been thinking about for some time now. For a while now, I have been thinking about happiness. You know, because for me, growing up in the church, we always separated happiness with joy. And if you grew up in the church, perhaps you're familiar with this to a certain degree. We separated happiness and joy. Happiness is seen as something like sentimental, almost trivial. But when we are supposed to think of joy, joy communicates a blessedness, a peace, a grounded contentment. And to prove this point is simple. You name your child joy, and that is deep. It's meaningful. It's wonderful. Try naming your child happy, and people will ask you, Why did you do this? And they may even wonder why you named your child. Perhaps was it done in a flippant manner? Because can you take someone that's named happy seriously? I want to explore this a little bit further, if that's okay. When you eat a good slice of apple pie, I mean like a good slice, not like a 5 out of 10, like a 7 out of 10, you know? I had a, a slice at Kirkland the other day, uh, Costco, and they're like, well, how's the pie? I was like, it's a, it's a solid five. 
It's like five out of five. No, five out of 14, bro. What are you talking about? But it was a good solid five. And, but then when you eat a good slice of apple pie, as a, it's a flaky crust. You could taste the butter, but it's not overpowering. The apple isn't too tart, but it's not so fresh that it's like, you know, you know what I mean? So it, like you might think, ah, a good slice of apple pie makes me happy. You might say something like that. Because it gives you a feeling of warmness. Maybe you're not a fan of apple pie, then please insert whatever thing you like to eat, okay? But it gives you a feeling of warmness. It brings you back to good times when you had good apple pie as a kid with your family on Christmas and other holidays. Makes you happy is the word that you would use, isn't it? Puppies. Immediately, when you say the word puppies, for some people, it brings a smile. Already, I see some people smiling because puppies make you happy. Um, my daughter really likes puppies and dogs, too. We gave Elizabeth a toy puppy, and I was preparing it to give it. I had to, like, because it was a toy thing, and, like, it barks when you pet it and stuff. I was preparing to give it to her, but she was so happy to get it. She couldn't contain herself. So my wife has this video of her not being able to control herself because she was so happy for the puppy, she started crying. That was weird. I was like, why are you crying? But she was laughing, crying, pleading, all at the same time because she was so happy for this puppy. That's how much that puppy made her happy, okay? So why did I preach on happiness? And you could always go back and listen to these sermons. My aim was, to a certain degree, to take back what happy really means. And I believe when we take something back, we are taking it back to mean what the Word of God says. It's how the Bible describes happiness. I'm going to keep on going here because I think it's important for today's message. When Jesus gives us the Beatitudes in Matthew and Luke we see him say, or you know, you would have thought that the people listening to the Sermon on the Mount would have heard him say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how we remember hearing it, yes? Or reading it in the Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now all the translators from the Greek would translate this word to blessed. That's why we see blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. The word in Greek, though, is makarios, and makarios is translated as blessed. But makarios means happy. It means happy. And anywhere that the Bible sees makarios, what it did was the translators, all the translators would translate makarios as Blessed, though, except for two places. There are about 50 places Makarios is used and its variations in the New Testament, but it's translated as blessed or blessed because they thought our contemporary culture wouldn't be able to understand or wouldn't be able to put together the Beatitudes as it should have been if it was translated as happy. And I agree. I don't think we could have. But I also think that we lose out on a lot 
if we can't see happiness for what it truly is. Happiness is joy. Happiness is joy. Now try calling someone named Joy happy. I don't think they'll like that, not yet at least. But I believe that that's the journey that I wanted to take. I think the journey was worth it in my opinion because I don't want us to lose out on what God intends for his people and for his glory. We have taken joy to mean something entirely different from happiness, but I think that's wrong. And so I said out of the 50 places where makarios was used, two places didn't translate it as blessed. So you might have been wondering, where are those two places? One is in Acts 26.2 when Paul is in front of King Agrippa and he goes, I consider myself makarios that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I can give my defense there. I am going to make my defense. That's what Paul says. I consider myself makarios. So how is that translated in your Bibles? It's translated as fortunate. So I consider myself fortunate. And obviously, we don't really think the word fortunate might have been uh, the, the true meaning of what he meant, right? He doesn't mean like I consider myself of good fortune or luck in that sense. He obviously didn't mean that. But he considers himself fortunate, meaning that he would imagine himself as being very happy that he gets to put a defense before King Agrippa. Where's the second place? It's in 1 Corinthians 7, 40, which we went over. And Paul says, yes, in my judgment, she is Makarios, or a variation of that, if she remains as she is. And that is translated as, yes, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. There, I don't think any of the translators could have gotten around using that word, so they had to use the word. But does the word have any less weight because it's used there in this context versus the Beatitudes? Is the Beatitudes makarios weightier than what Paul would say? I think not. I think it's all those things. So happiness or joy in the Bible means both the things that we talked about and both those things very deeply. It means puppies. Yeah, it does. It does. It means apple pie, yes. And it means also a resounding peace from the soul going up to the emotive. It does. All of that is happy. So when we say we are going to have joy in heaven, it means all those things. Not just one level. It's all of them. All of that means happy. And I think it's important that at least we ref- when we reference happiness here, We understand what that means. Now, why this review? Why do I think this review is important for today? Because I think it will help us understand this passage better as well. There are two sections in this psalm that we can kind of separate this psalm into. The first section is from verses 1 to 3. And from verses 1 to 3, it's talking about the past. And the second section is present day when the psalmist wrote it. And it's called the Song of Ascent because later after these psalms were written, they took 15 together, compiled it, put it together as the Song of Ascents, and they would customarily sing it as they would ascend to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was up higher. The temple was up on a higher place. So you would ascend and you would sing these psalms, and they all have different themes, but 
it was to remind them ultimately of why they were ascending. And so let me take the passage into two parts that it's laid out for us. In the first part, we are brought back to a past. Most likely, it was the return from Babylonian, from the Babylonian exile. For 70 years, Israel had been defeated, captured. The land was devastated. And now with Nehemiah, Ezra, and others, they make their way back to Israel. They start rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. And this psalm is recounting that experience. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It was like a dream. That's how good that was. That's how wonderful that experience was, going back to Zion. But it's it's the way the psalmist puts it that is magnificent. He's using contrasts. And he contrasts various ways and degrees to show how good and bad something is. You know, contrasts are a literary device that's used all throughout history. It's used in Shakespeare to modern uh, literature now. It's a powerful way to describe something to someone when you use contrast. And we'll see it throughout this psalm, okay? Like Shakespeare's Richard III opens up with, Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. That's a contrast used to show how glorious the summer is and how discontent the winter is, that kind of thing. Or you could imagine a freshly baked apple pie resting on a windowsill being cooled by the autumn breeze because after you bake the apple pie, what do you have to do? Everybody should know this, right? You have to cool it for at least how long? At least an hour. You can't just take the apple pie and serve it. That's crazy. We're not savages, right? And so we serve it either with like a cold, you know, scoop of vanilla ice cream or something like that. Because to get a decent apple pie, you know you must let it rest after it's baked. So to let it rest or cool, there's a contrast being put. So if I explain that to you, the contrast bring that apple pie to life. It's a literary device. And we're going to see this literary device of contrast throughout the psalm. But here we see it being used to allude to the time when their fortunes were restored. And not just any kind of fortune, the fortunes of Zion. It was such an overwhelming experience, it was like a dream. In one of the better animated movies out there, when the food critic Anton Ego, he takes a forkful of a peasant dish, stewed vegetables. Once he puts it in his mouth, you see in the scene that his eyes widen, and then we are transported back into his childhood. And there we see an eight-year-old Ego after he had grazed his knee from riding his bike, sitting down, the warm light hitting him and surrounding him, his mother, seeking to comfort him, hands him a bowl of ratatouille, which he happily dives into. That's a dream that something brought you back to. The people of Israel are also brought back to this dreamlike state when they remember the fortunes that they got 
the fortunes of Zion. They are brought back to laughter with shouts of joy, it says in verse 2. There are probably a few experiences and only a few experiences that can compare to what the Israelites went through and felt during that time. And I was thinking probably the best comparison that we can compare this to is the deliverance that we have in Christ. When we were saved, when we received Jesus Christ, it has all the elements of the prior sadness before to the exultant happiness after. Why? Because in both cases, it was a people who were oppressed with no possessions, nothing remote to what they can call riches, and then being brought to a place where it was from a place of desperation, darkness, and hopelessness, now to exuberant singing. In fact, it was so magnificent. I mean, imagine that. Can you be, when, when was the last time you were brought back to a place when you were in intense, deep sadness and you were brought to a place where you couldn't help but to sing? That's the place that they were. I believe that's, when you think about this, you can't help but to think about your own deliverance, your own salvation. It was so magnificent, this deliverance, that the nations, that means the Gentiles, people that do not know God, it would say at the end of verse 2, that they would say the Lord, and they use the word Yahweh, the Lord has done great things for them. That's how great it was. And that's what salvation does, doesn't it? It takes us from a place of deep darkness and sadness to a place of buoyancy, of exhilaration, so much so that the people around can't help but to notice something has changed about you, hasn't it? And even here, the Gentile nations can't help but to exclaim that it was Yahweh that was good to them. In this Christmas season, we are reminded why Jesus came upon this earth. It was like he said himself in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the deliverance that God's people receive is truly an incredible deliverance, is it not? I want to explore that just a little bit, the joy of deliverance. And I believe it is threefold. These people that were freed, we who have been freed, receive a threefold joy. Number one, the first fold is the joy of salvation. Many Christians, when they first believe and are even baptized, we see their testimonies being filled with hope and joy contrasted with their previous lives. In our bondage to sin, conversion to Christ as a Christ follower is a most thrilling and wonderful thing. One of the most thrilling things imaginable. The contrast is shown here even more drastically in the Bible where we, are, we were once dead and now we are alive. The celebration that ensued after the prodigal son would come back home, the party that would happen would be the merriest the grandest of parties that the father would throw for the prodigal son. 
And that's how joy-filled even heaven is when one sinner repents and turns back to God. And that's why in Christ, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been placed from death to life. There is a deep welling then of happiness that occurs when you recognize, when you truly recognize the significance of your salvation. Something that we reflect back into worship every first day of the week when we gather together as saved people of God. We gather as the bride of Christ. How joyful is the bride We gather in that heart. So the first fold was the joy of salvation. Let's go to the second fold, the joy of ultimate victory. We see all these folds again here in the psalm, but also throughout the Bible. In Christ, we have ultimate victory. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, At first, when you believed, it was glorious. It did feel like a party and celebration, didn't it? In your heart, at least, right? But then reality is, tough times will come upon you. Some of you are in tough times now. Life isn't all parties and celebration. And there are some times, really, where it might even seem like dark times. How is that possible When I'm saved. But here is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The end is ultimately victory. The end is ultimately victory. And it has been guaranteed by his blood and atonement on the cross. You know, when you know the end, you live differently, do you not? When you know the end of a movie when you know the end of a sports match, when you know the end of a war or battle, you react differently. And I think that's on purpose why God showed us the end beforehand. God shows us the end so that it can inject joy into what may be seemingly joyless times. When you know the end, you're like, it might be tough now, but I know there's joy tomorrow. I know there's victory tomorrow. And that changes how I react now. Which brings us to our third fold, the joy of the journey. In this journey, and even the dry seasons that we may face, God does not leave us alone or leave us without purpose. We are all given parts to play, We have roles to fulfill, duties to accomplish, goals to achieve. We are made Christ's body and each play a part in one another's sanctification even. And that's what fellowship in Christ is meant to do. It's meant to do a sanctifying work in our journey. 
It's the discipline. If you have a discipline, you understand this. That even while there is pain in your workout, there is joy still because you look forward to the gain or gains. That's why we don't let up, slow down, give in, but we remain steadfast. You continue to pump out those reps in the gym. You continue to run those miles as you run because there is a goal ahead of you. There is a joy in the journey. Right after Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15, let me read you the very next verse of what I was reading. It says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, the assurance of gain isn't simply from wishful thinking. It's from God. It's God who assures us that our labor is not in vain. When we sow in righteousness, we will reap that harvest of joy. Which brings us to the second and final portion of this psalm, verses 4 to 6. But before that, I hope that those of us that were astute got this. What is this threefold joy? It's our justification our glorification, and our sanctification. And that informs the very next petition that we see in verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like, the stream, like streams in the Negeb. It's a similar feel to David's psalm when he wrote Psalm 51, when he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Is it not? Restore our fortunes, O Lord. It's asking God to make what is incredibly difficult now, today, today, a season perhaps of exceeding dryness, because that's what the Negeb was. The Negeb was a dry, dry desert. In fact, there are very few places that are drier than the Negeb. But take this severely dry desert and start running streams through it. Because streams is plural. It's a bold ask, isn't it? Because some of us would think that in dry times, you know what, I'll just be happy with a glass of water, God. I'm running, I'm walking, I'm traversing through this desert. It's so dry, it's, I'm parched, maybe just a glass of water. But what does the psalmist ask? Not this psalmist, he doesn't ask for a glass of water. In the driest of times, he asks for streams, water gushing into the desert. And what does water gushing into the desert do? It would take what is dead and make it teeming with life, teeming with life. Every part of that desert would change. And how can he ask that? How can this psalmist have such a bold ask? He can ask that because he knows what kind of God Yahweh is. He remembers verses 1 to 3. He remembers his salvation because he remembers that God is that kind of God. 
And I think this is an important lesson for many Christians today. Sometimes we too often also admit defeat too early. We say, oh, I guess I'll be happy in heaven, I guess. You guess? No. The happiest that the psalmist seeks, the happiness that the psalmist seeks is happiness right now. Christians do not live defeated lives. That will be a contradiction of identities. And he knows this. The psalmist knows this. And so he prays accordingly. And we see Christians throughout history sing while being persecuted, jailed, tortured even, and killed. How could they have done this? They did this because they knew a God that saves. They knew God is a God who saves. And immediately you might think, what about those people that weren't saved? Meaning saved in the sense that they actually did end up getting tortured, living really, really difficult lives, even dying. Verses 5 to 6, I believe, covers that. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. In our sanctification, the Lord uses all our tears, our weeping, all the circumstances, all of our circumstances that we might be facing to bring about joy. It will ultimately bring about joy, and that's what the psalmist understands. Now, at present time, we might not know exactly why a certain dry season or difficult season is longer than others, but what we do know that is that God will inevitably and assuredly turn those tears into joy, into exaltation, a dancing even. There can be no doubt that this is true because look where we are now. The leaders of the faith that came before us, God used them to lay groundwork for us, did they not? Their martyrdom, their suffering was not in vain. It brought about everything that we are standing on right now. And that is why we say things like we stand on the shoulders of giants. It was their sacrifice that that gave us the good life of plenty that we can enjoy even in this very moment. And if we ever come to a place of hardship or if we ever come to a time of suffering, we also know that God will use that to plant a seed that will grow 30, 60, 100 times what was planted, what was sown. And that's why now is the time to work. Now is the time to sow. Even if times are hard, times are tough, money is tight, your health is waning, now is the time to work because it's God who blesses the harvest. And we look forward to the harvest in this life or the next with great anticipation and with joy. That's why they call this season a season of joy. Have you ever wondered why? Why this is called a season of joy? Because maybe even wonder, why celebrate Christmas in the winter's solstice, the darkest time of the year? 
Why did they decide to celebrate the birth of Christ? I think you know the answer. Because it was in the darkest time that we received the greatest light. It's Christ's life that gives us the greatest strength and hope because it was we, we were once lost, but he found us. We were once dead, but he gave us life. What a great season this is then to celebrate. And so let us celebrate what Christ has done together by worshiping him with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our strength, with all of our souls. Let's worship God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us, the encouraging psalm that you give us, reminding us the joy of our salvation, the joy of being a freed people, free from our sin, free from the oppression that it brings, free from the darkness that it wrought, free to worship you and to live lives truly happy. Help us now, whatever season that we are in, to remember the ultimate season of joy that we have been given in Christ and to now, in response, sow and plant as you command us to, to sow in righteousness so that we can reap in joy. Let's take this time to pray. And as the Lord instructs us through his word, let us pray that we can be people that will continue to obey him through all the ways he calls us to, with joy and with gratitude, with true happiness and with thanksgiving. Let's pray.